0: Free Your Inner Guru is a listener-supported show. Supporting the podcast is also designed to support you by keeping the episodes free of ads, but also with rewards for your donation like the Free Your Inner Guru guidebook, a private listener forum, and live monthly Q&A sessions. To become a supporting member, you can visit patreon.com forward slash Free Your Inner Guru. Welcome to Free Your Inner Guru. I'm your host, Laura Tucker. I am super happy to release this 55th episode of the podcast. Our guest is Adit Margalliot. Adit is a medical doctor who specialized in neurology and neuromuscular disorders. After years of listening to her patients struggle not only with their neurological conditions, but also with their sleep, she wanted to better understand this problem and how to help them manage it. She went on to study sleep medicine and obtain her designation as a specialist in the field. This was but a start of her exploration on how lifestyle impacts health and disease. More recently, she has been formally studying functional medicine, an approach that seeks to identify the core triggers and contributors to ill health on a systems-based approach and how to allow the body to heal through nutrition, lifestyle, sleep, stress management, and so on. Incorporating these principles into her practice and emphasizing a collaborative relationship with her patients has brought a deep sense of energy and joy to her work. In the process of building a practice that aligns with her values and goals, she has learned the importance of questioning dogma, breaking away from stale patterns of thinking, and listening to one's inner wisdom. I love this conversation with Adit because A, I learned a ton and B, as an avid pursuer of all things alternative therapy, everything seems to be coming together to form a picture of why proactive maintenance can make a very real quantifiable difference in how we experience our body and consequently life over the long term. As I was editing and preparing this episode, I was reminded of an anti-drug ad campaign that ran in the 1980s. At the beginning of the ad, A whole egg is held up to represent this is your brain and then it's cracked into a hot frying pan to become this is your brain on drugs. If I were to summarize today's episode, it would be to show the egg in the frying pan as this is today's brain and then roll it in reverse back up into the whole egg while saying this is your brain on self-care. As Adit says at the very end, it's important to get the word out. Enjoy your next hour with a very candid and enthusiastic medical doctor. Our guest this week on Free Your Inner Guru is Adit Margaliot. I met Adit a couple of weeks ago. We were both at an event. Um, we were both speaking to a group of women chiropractors. Adit is a neurologist. I don't know about you, but I don't meet neurologists every day, although I met one last year under some trying circumstances. So Adit and I got talking, and then the more that I learned about her and and her work and what she's into these days, the more I was thinking she'd be a wonderful guest on the podcast. So thank you for making time in your schedule to be here with me uh, today, Adit.
1: Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: So I want to start with what caught my attention, other than, you know, we were both sitting in the back of the room, listening to the previous speaker, and, uh, and then the organizer introduced you, and, and you and she are, you know each other, and she introduced you as a neurologist, and she said one, something like, one of the things that I especially love about having a eat here today is not only is she a neurologist, but she really grew up granola. Mm -hmm. and and gets the healing world and uh, and so of course I sat up and and took extra notice and so I'd love for you to just tell us a little start off a little bit tell us about the work that you do as a neurologist and then we'll take it from there and and sort of fill out the the the, uh, fuller picture of you Sure. Well, it's
1: it's kind of funny when she said that because I've really thought of my granola aspect as something that's come over the years as, you know, I develop and grow um, as a practitioner and as a person. But just at the time, it sort of, it came to me that, yeah, no, there's probably a background grounding that I probably didn't acknowledge as, as fully as I should. Um, so from a neurology perspective, I mean, I did my medical school at McMaster and then I went to Western. So I'm very much an Ontario girl to do my um, Neurology residency and a fellowship in neuromuscular disease. And for my first almost 10 years of practice, I was mainly hospital based. So a lot of acute medicine, a lot of acute neurology. um, So a lot of strokes and incredibly ill people. And then at that sort of almost 10 year mark, you know, as life changes, I had young kids, we had moved, and a a long um, commute came into play. I realized. You have to start pre, uh, looking at your priorities and reorganizing. And so I decided to go into more community practice so that I could control my um, my my hours. Um, and I can say that to some degree, you know, that it helped no longer be on, on call to a hospital. But uh, I was just replacing those hours with, with practice, with my community practice. And so it's been a learning process over the past seven years of how to modify that and and learn how to make changes that are real to what you are actually valuing, which at this stage is a is a good balance with family life and and so forth so um my neurology practice became uh, more focused on what you see day-to-day in the office as opposed to the hospital, which is a lot of chronic diseases. So you see a lot of migraines, a lot of MS and Parkinson's disease and Mm -hmm. other conditions like Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, And then a lot of, um, we don't know what you have, but there's nothing bad there. We call it the numb and tingles, where we're mainly reassuring people that there isn't anything there. And then, you know, I think, partly because of my own sort of health journey and issues and also spending time now with patients, um, not only hearing uh, about their chronic illnesses. And and I think one thing you might hear more and more practitioners say is that Western medicine is wonderful for acute problems and trauma and so on, but we're not dealing with chronic diseases very well. And, you know, as I listen to these patients, one of the things that would come up is, they'd all have sleep problems. And, you know, I kept thinking, well, of course, when you can't sleep, you're not going to do well. So even if you take a healthy person and they don't sleep well, they're going to function horribly on multiple levels. And in these cases, how much is bad sleep contributing to the disease of my patients? So I actually said, you know what? This is something I had no training in. We got almost nothing in medical school or residency other than recognizing some fairly rare diseases. And so I said, if I'm going to help my patients, I need to know what to ask them about sleep and, and then hopefully do something about it. I'd like to be able to treat that. So then I took a little bit of a side jag, still continuing with my neurology practice to learn sleep medicine um and Mm -hmm. and so that took a few years and so now that's part of my practice as well so i do both sleep medicine and my my neurology practice and as you alluded to with the functional medicine again the more you spend time seeing patients with chronic complaints and illnesses and then starting to see the constellation of conditions um, that they present with you, you, you start to wonder, well, what's underlying all of this? And you also see the problems with the way we do medicine today, at least Western medicine, which is if you've got a, a, a rash, go see the dermatologist. If you've got some breathing problems, go to the respirologist. You've got a joint problem, I'll sp- send you to the rheumatologist. If you've got headaches, you see me. And if you have some irritable bowel symptoms, no one can help you. So don't worry about that, but you're okay because you don't have Crohn's or cancer. And All these people are suffering, miserable, feeling unhealthy. And again, part of that is because I was going through a very similar situation myself um, that I think I developed not only a great degree of empathy, but in the background, I was doing my own research, partly to help myself and seeing how many of my patients am I seeing and what I'm reading about? And so um, that brought me to the level of we need to get to the bottom of lifestyle, nutrition, diet, because we can actually impact patient well-being, personal well-being, and and so forth. So I'm I'm not practicing it 100% yet. I'm still in the learning process. And because I do come from that, you know, scientific MD background, I I need to see all the evidence. I need to understand all the pathways. I I need to know this 100% before I, you know, suggested or move on. But I do start, you know, I have started to use some of those things in my practice. The nice thing was, you know, that they gave me a little bit of a boost of confidence that even in the neurology world, you know, when we were uh, seeing uh, migraine patients, it's become acceptable to tell them about some nutritional supplements that have been shown to help. So it kind of tells you, we're going to get there eventually, just some of us want to get there a lot faster. And so that's where the functional medicine is. And so I'm working on that to build
0: it more into my day-to-day practice, both in sleep and neurology. Can you clarify for me what I've heard of functional medicine? I think I went to see a doctor when I first moved back to Toronto who was sort of practicing functional medicine, but I want to make sure that I'm clear and and consequently anyone listening is clear on what different, like neurology is, is medicine of the brain.
1: Yep. A brain sleep
0: medicine is all about, and it's very easy to see how they're interconnected, because even right. from a like mood perspective, let alone functioning and attention, sleep in the brain, it doesn't take a medical degree to draw a connection there. right. right. Where does the fu- what does the functional piece mean, and right. how do how does that integrate?
1: Yeah, well, so it's it's coming back to absolute basics. So let me give you an example. I remember and this this is a um, an example that sticks out in my mind because it was someone that I'd seen, let's say relatively early in my practice and she was di- I diagnosed her with multiple sclerosis, which is an autoimmune condition where the immune system and the antibodies attack the nervous system, so the spinal cord and the brain. And I still remember when she came to me and you know, we we threw some really nasty sounding drugs um, to suppress the immune system um, for a disease like this. And she said to me, doctor, do you think this flare, this this episode of symptoms had anything to do with stress? And I said to her at the time, you know, I'm sure it can't help. It's not like we have any evidence specifically. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't put too much weight on that. And that's the one that just sticks with me because you don't have to be an MD nowadays to say, what are you talking about? But the reality was that if you practiced Western-based, evidence-based medicine, I do not have a study of 20,000 patients, you know, comparing, you know, stress levels and how that impacted. And therefore I cannot say that, that this, is, this is having any impact on your disease. The idea of functional medicine is that we look, so, so with MS, let me back up a little bit. So we will often tell patients when they ask, why do I have this? We'll say you probably have some sort of underlying genetic predisposition and then something triggered your immune system to get overactive and get confused, and now it's attacking your brain instead of whatever bacteria or virus it was meant to attack. And then let's, let's give you something to suppress your immune system. Instead of saying, let's figure out what triggered your immune system. Yes, you might have a genetic predisposition, maybe you don't, but I just said something triggered you or your system to malfunction. Let's discover and figure out what that might be. And that might be something that you're eating, something that you're exposed to, the way your body is handling stress or your lifestyle that's bringing you there. So that's sort of my take on the functional medicine. It's also, you know, I'll see the patient who's got a symptom and any number of, you know, uh, uh, systems and nobody's saying, wow, you're just inflamed and you have all these autoimmune conditions here. It's affecting your joints here. It's affecting your brain here. It's affecting your gut. No one's saying nobody's the inflammatory doctor. No one is saying clearly it's inflammation everywhere. What's triggering that? Why is your body not able to handle that and balance itself out? Let's get to the core of that. And then from, from, you know, certainly there's been a ton of data that's come out in the last number of years about the gut microbiome. So the bacteria hmm. in the gut and how that affects and causes a leaky gut that allows things into the system that can trigger the immune system that can then cross into the brain that can cause mood and disruption. So a lot of it comes to the core of, okay, what's, what are you putting into your system by mouth, by skin, otherwise that's triggering and causing all sorts of different things and Depending on your predisposition, it might be a disorder of the skin. It might be someone else's predisposition. They'll develop something in their in their brain. So getting to the core of what's triggering this poor health and whether through diet, lifestyle, and some support through proper diet, preferably some nutraceuticals and so forth, how do we make you better and allow the, the body to actually get to a much better state than it is? And the reality is that many of our chronic diseases and our states and feelings of well Uh, not being uh, well is because of lifestyle issues. If you want to throw all of that
0: under that Mm -hmm. rubric and that,
1: and and that if you help people through that, you can make them a
0: lot better. You know, so, and I have no idea how you're going to respond to this next comment of mine. So feel free. This is what we're doing here is having the big conversation. So it's almost in, in my world, the people that I first started hearing about inflammation from, were the naturopaths? Yeah, were absolutely. the chiropractors? Were the ironic that we met at a chiropractor? Um, you know, um, a, I don't know what to call it, but an event yeah. for conference. So, so is and so I consider those mostly alternative for, and I guess it is alternatives to the traditional Western medicine. So, so is it then is this development of functional medicine and doctors becoming interested in it? Is it, is Western med- medicine catching up in a sense? Is it integrating more? Like how do you see that? Yeah. Like to be very clear, I, I, I see a ton of alternative um, practitioners always have, has been a huge part of my healing journey, but I do not negate the doctors. So I'm not coming at this from any hardcore bias.
1: Absolutely. And I would say, I think that there's a tremendous overlap between what I'm talking about and what a naturopath does. Um, and, and, and maybe very small degree of, of differences, if any, I think the functional medicine concept is very much a specific program that's being instituted at certain places like the the Cleveland clinic. And there's an institute that's trying to train people. And I know that the people who go, um, down that path can be MDs, they can be chiropractors, they're naturopaths. So I think, you know, it's sort of probably taking a lot of what the naturopaths were coming from and adding, um, I mean, I can't speak to their training, so I don't know whether they're adding to it or uh, enhancing it or actually saying the same thing. Um, I think from my perspective, and, and certainly from some uh, patients' perspective, it's it's reassuring when they have an MD practicing these things as well. Because one, it's not bad to walk in with a bit of a skeptic eye to say, look, I, I want to make sure that I know that there is evidence. And with functional medicine, we are looking at evidence. We are looking at here are the biological pathways. Here's why this supplement mm-hmm. and so forth makes sense and so forth. And again, I may be doing exactly what the naturopath does, but I'm bringing a background of, I know what Western medicine does. I can also, if needed, if it comes down to it, prescribe those things when there's a necessity for it i can also recognize some red flags where we say okay you know what time to move it into a different realm but i think you know when you're talking about chronic disease there's a there's a huge lifestyle component and i agree that the chiropractors and the naturopath and so many of other uh, of those people have been doing that for years and have been advocating for it for years and i think this is maybe more of a you know what we recognize it. Now we get it. And now we need to do that on a much larger, better recognized scale.
0: That's very, that's very, very encouraging because a lot of the times, and I'll refer back to um, my experience last year, and we we spoke about this. Um, and I think by this point, there'll be at least an episode on the podcast sharing that exactly this time last year, I came down with a massive bout of vertigo. Mm -hmm. that, you know, and it started now. And so this is late November and it was Christmas Eve morning where I kind of had enough because it, it hadn't gone away, but it got worse. And I was looking at Christmas Eve, Christmas day, boxing day, you know, what if I have an infection? What, and started thinking beyond, okay, I need to meditate, take down the stress, watch what I'm eating. Nothing was really addressing it. And, uh, and that's how I ended up eventually a few months later having an MRI, mm-hmm. you know, so that was my first dip. It scared the crap out of me. I have to say right. that was my first foray at 52 into, Oh, TikTok. <laughs> you know, is this something because they were looking to see if there has been potentially some mini stroke because nothing came up at the ear, nose and throat specialist and blah, blah, blah. Right. So I, I, the point of sharing that is it can catch you off guard. And even someone who's, who is predisposed to do everything else first Mm -hmm. ends up in that chair hearing, Oh, there might be something going on with your head, your heart, your lungs, like these very primary organs. Right. And it's, it's scary, but you also want the whole picture looked at.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, for me, it's almost usually to the other end. So, so if they come to me, we rule out the big stuff first. The MRI Mm. comes first. I rule out the brain tumor and everything else first. And what would happen more often than not, thank goodness, is I'd be able to reassure them and say, look, you don't have the cancer. You don't have the this. You know, we see this sometimes, but I don't have an answer for you. And, And I think, again, with seeing patients with more chronic illnesses, I would be saying that a lot. And so it was more the drive of, after I've done that big stuff, there are other things, and the more you speak to the the, for lack of a word, uh, alternative uh, practitioners, they'll tell you, yeah, I have some, and I can help them. I treat them, and I do this, and and they feel better, and and your ears perk up because you know, especially as a neurologist, there's not a lot of people I actually make feel better. I might control their disease, and I might make their MRI look less diseased, and so forth but it's hard to say I make people feel better even with the stuff that works. You know, it's all heavy, toxic stuff. Um, And so to me, that was also a little bit of, um, you know, it was a discouraging thing to to tell my patients, here are your options of treatment – And they all suck, but it's just presumably better than the alternative of not treating this condition. So I think you want the melding of both. And I like the idea of being able to do that all at the same time so that you don't, just like I didn't want you to go see the rheumatologist for this and the dermatologist for this and the me for this, because everybody Mm -hmm. needs to look at it together. It's nice to say, I can actually rule out the big stuff, make sure they're all sleeping at night because we're not worried about anything like that. And then we can say, okay, so let's look at everything else. Let's look at what else can actually change now that we're not worried that we've missed cancer, right? Mm -hmm. And so it gives you you the ability to, to do that. And that's just, you know, it's one thing where, you know, unfortunately for the chiropractor, the naturopath, they can't. They say, well, go back to your doctor and send them for this. And the doctor is going to say, I don't even recognize what they do, let alone who they are. And maybe, you know, depending on your doctor, they might listen, they might not. You know, it's a little bit of, you know, begging, will you do that? Because I've thought of this condition. So this is someone who recognizes and says, I get what they're doing. I totally agree with it. Absolutely. Let's start with this and then work our way down. And then I think... I think there's also a group of patients out there. I mean, I think there's tons that are looking. They are looking just to feel better. And that's why there's such a need for these alternative treatments, if you will. Mm -hmm. But they want the reassurance. They want sort of the the gravitas of saying, well, the doctor said it's okay. The doctor says I should be doing this. And they're sometimes surprised when I'm the one who tells them, you know, let's look at all those things. They're like, really? I never hear a doctor say that.
0: So, so it, it, it makes it okay. I chose the route of the ER, which may or may not have been the best. But, but my first meeting with the, uh, the neurologist um, after that day, because it was clear there was nothing urgent going on. Um, I thought I was having my MRI then and there when I found out that I wasn't. And it was an appointment with the neurologist to go over everything. And I, like, I wanted the answer now. I didn't want to wait for the answer. When I finally figured out that it wasn't happening that day, I like I I was bawling, yeah. bawling in his office, full on meltdown, and I was a little embarrassed afterwards. So then, fast forward um, a few months because I had to wait, uh, and we're back in the office this time. My husband came with me, and by that point, it, the the symptoms had resolved. But we're in his office, we're back at the hospital, and you know we go in and sit down, and then he just turns around and he smiles. This beaming smile. And then, um, and then everything was fine. And then we had a conversation about, he's like, I love having these conversations. Yes. Yes. These conversations are unfortunately not the everyday for me. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and that is, that's a really, that's a big, thank goodness. Right. We need yes. people in that role in in your role but we also need people to to like there was no solutions but by that point i had kind of gone to my alternative measures and put it together
1: right and that's and that's sort of where western medicine has for a long time been leaving off ruled at the big stuff be reassured go home and live with whatever you got <laughs> or figure it out for yourself instead of giving some guidance as to here are thirty things that may have contributed to this, you know. And even if you bring that up, because patients figure they're being wild and crazy, and maybe somewhat secretive. Of okay, I just I, I don't know. I got to figure out something, right? And um, sometimes it, it helps. Also, I think in this day and age, you know, for lack of a better term, fake news and so forth. You know, if 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 you can get some information that comes with a bit of reliability behind it. So you're not just Googling the web, looking for random things and buying a lot of shark cartilage and, and, and mortgaging the house for it. You know, you've got some, some more reasonable direction.
0: Yes. Yes. Because the full spectrum exists out there. Unfortunately it does. Yeah. Um, so interesting. I just had a conversation with a friend this morning and he's, his company, he listens. So, Hey, Kevin, I'm going to talk about you, but, um, he, his company is in the pet industry and they, may, so nutrition and the impact of the ingredients on the pets are a big part of the conversation. Yeah. And, uh, and what we came, we were talking about, cause he's very excited about a product that his company is introducing into a new market and saying that the, the doctor who he's partnered with and, you know, being able to provide direct access, not unlike what I'm so grateful to have right now, is like, how often do you get to sit down and talk to a neurologist about, you know, ultimately what's going to become self-care and, and taking care of things? And we were referring to um, Google University.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I told him, I said, I'm going to use that. I didn't know I'd use it right now, but Google university is a scary, scary place to learn about your health. Yeah. What do you say to people who come to you and who may, and let's face it, we can find really good information on the internet, Yeah. but I'm sure it's a mixed bag when you're, by the time they get to you.
1: Oh, for sure. And and what I've learned, or I learned years ago in my practice, because patients would present with certain symptoms. And so in my mind, that would take me down certain roads of what it might be. And this is what we're going to look for, rule out, rule in, and so forth, is to ask them, so what have you Googled? And what conditions are you worried about that might not have even come up in our conversation, because it wouldn't occur to me that this is something you'd go down. And I can certainly tell you, any female with numbness wants to know about MS, and and anybody in general with muscle twitching wants to know if they have Lou Gehrig's disease, um, and if it's a tremor, it's Parkinson's. Right? Those are the kinds of things that come up. So, so I ask that question, and I encourage patients to all, never walk out of the interaction if there was something they were worried about that never came up, because you could have talked about exactly what you're doing, but they'll still go home and say, "Did the doctor just not?" realize that it could be this and, and, and they're not even addressing that concern. So I always ask, and I, I would encourage patients to do that. And then I can say, here's why it doesn't really fit with that diagnosis or why it wasn't on my list because these things don't fit. Um, and then we can address it right there and there. Um, I don't blame people. I, I would do the same. Of course, you're going to look it up. And sometimes people come so well prepared, so educated that it's actually such a pleasure um, because then we can have real nitty gritty discussion, you know, that's kind of like the mm. next level, like maybe it would have taken place next time. Um, so they ask good questions. But I don't think, you know, that there are bad questions. Just sometimes we have to, to spend some time de-escalating their worry or taking mm-hmm. a few things off their plate, which is legitimate. I think nowadays you do have to be your your own health advocate. And I think, especially now as I'm talking about functional medicine, you have to look for alternative treatments that might not have been suggested by your family doctor or, or the, you know, anybody else you might have come across. I mean, I I tend to tell my back pain pain. I mean, I also in my neurology practice, I do see a lot of leg pain, back pain, things like that. And I will tell them, yes, they've seen physio, they've done acupuncture and, and chiropractor and they haven't gotten anywhere. You know, there's a certain group that won't. And I say, have you tried an osteopath? And they'll say, what is that? And i am mm-hmm. saying, let's talk about that and try it because it's done me some great good. So I'm happy to advocate for it. But there are other things out there that if you simply haven't heard of it, you feel like your toolbox is finished, you've gone through everything and there's no hope. And that's where you say there are alternatives there are many techniques out there, as you know, at the chiropractic um, uh, conference that we went to, you saw somebody do my functional treatments, you know, I'll tell them there's Feldenkrais techniques for injuries, there's the osteopaths. So it's worth looking out there for what is there to 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 try if you haven't tried yet, right? And for some people, that will be the, the part that works.
0: This leads, this sets us up perfectly to talk about, um, about taking responsibility for your own wellness and embracing a self-care journey. And I know that's something that we connected on when, when we were talking at the conference. Um, how do you see, I guess for from from both of our perspective, there's a there's a responsibility for your well-being piece here. And, you know, not just relying on what one person says, period.
1: Right. Well, and I think I think there's there's different levels and different ways where that comes in. So it can be generational. It can be how generally informed the person is. It can be on the level of how receptive are they for change? So you have, you know, a certain culture and age of patients will come in just just tell me what it is doc. And if the doctor said this you're done. You have people who just um, have been so injured and are so unwell that they're vulnerable and they're scared and their resources are tapped and so they just kind of need the kind of guidance from someone who will say here are a lot of options but if they fall into the hands of someone who says you do this that and then you're done they, they kind of don't have the mental resources or the energy to to pursue other things then there are people who do have those faculties and those resources and they'll say okay how can i affect change for myself and so you can see that there's people all along the spectrum and Mm -hmm. so for, for those where it's just how can i best affect change it's it's informing them educating them giving them options like letting them see what the evidence is so they can make the best choices that seem to drive for them so you're kind of speaking at different levels to different people
0: yeah and offering i mean that's that's guidance there that's not that doesn't stop at a at a, here's a prescription.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And then there's the people who say, I just want a prescription for this condition, whether it has a a viable treatment like that or not. And then there are people who say, what else can I do? And that's, that's when I stop talking and I don't stop. Right. Because usually there are so many things they can do. So I certainly find in my office, you get a, 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 a feeling for it through a discussion about what people prefer and how they do things. And then I, in my personal case, I sort of um, go with that. If I see that they just, I, I just want the pill, what pill do you have for this condition? Okay. Then, then that's what we discuss. But if they're in any way open to anything else, then I tell them about all the options. I think for the most part, taking ownership and working in a partnership, a therapeutic partnership with your practitioner is huge. And I think this is one area where Western medicine has had it all wrong. And the alternative practitioners have had it all right. Because it, it's such a huge component of getting a person to feel better. So Western medicine, you got 10 minutes, you better cover everything, which mm. is mainly the, the the practitioner talking, prescribing, walking out, here's the the action plan. Whereas the hour and a half that you have with your alternative practitioner means that you've established a rapport, uh, a communication, a relationship in that time, and presumably you've been heard. And, and I think that is a huge component of actually healing and getting better. And so that's why the Western medicine system doesn't it just sets you up for failure in that respect. Whereas with other practitioners, that's part of the, the, the setup for success. And and that's something I wish would change. And that was one of the frustrations I had with a traditional practice, where I, I, I'm supposed to see somebody every 20 minutes. How can I do anything? How can, how can I hear anything in that time?
0: And and it's uh, especially if you're you're associated at the hospital. I guess by the time they're getting to you, they're at that state of urgency.
1: Yes. Yeah, so by the time they're getting to the hospital. We're going to get a, a thorough history. I'm not going to talk about your stress levels, you know, and about your childhood, and you know what your relationship is. Okay, I'm going to hear your symptoms. It's going to be about ten minutes. I'm going to examine you. I'm going to localize that lesion. And then I'm going to probably image it. And until we've done all of that, you know, there's no time for anything else. And sometimes that is exactly what gives us the diagnosis. And then we get that treatment, you know, as soon as possible. So if you've come in, you know, and half of your body isn't moving and you can't see out of one side of your eye, again, I'm not talking about your childhood experiences. I'm going to examine you, get the MRI, diagnose the stroke, see if we need to do something now or later. So, so there's different levels of uh, disease and presentation that require a different approach, obviously.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it actually reminds me of something that I heard a long time ago, which was kind of dealing with the problem on the level that it occurs. Mm-hmm. And it was actually in the context of um, holistic versus traditional practitioners, right. where it's like, you know what, you have pain in your chest and you're doubled over. You, you are dealing at that level where going yeah. to the doctor, going to emergency. You're that's going at her, the level at which you're occurring.
1: Absolutely. You're getting all the tests thrown at you, and we're going to get the aspirin in you before you even like, said hello, and we're just going to get that dealt with. And that's where we're very good. You know, there's our acute medicine. If you're talking about somebody who's had symptoms on and off for you know, four years, I'm not throwing you in a scanner and telling you, take the pills before I've even gotten your history. I know I've got some time. It's something that's brewed over years. It's a different process. And, and that's where the dichotomy exists.
0: Yeah. And so do you find the functional medicine gives you that, that framework gives you more freedom to do that with people?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, we were highly, highly trained, of course, for the acute stuff and for the big diseases, but we, we weren't as much for those long, slow brewing kind of problems. I mean, I can tell you one of the reasons that, I liked doing sleep medicine as I explained to my patients, how many times would I see an Alzheimer patient and say, look, there's really nothing we can do. There's no drug that cures this. Of course, there's no drug that really makes a significant impact. We Mm. can tweak a little bit, but here's what the future is going to hold. And unfortunately it's not great. The key is to prevent this from ever getting here. And we did very little talking about that, you know, when I was in training, but you know, now we talk about, they talk about the Mediterranean diet, the importance of exercise to get good blood flow to the brain. And now if I can treat your sleep apnea 30 years before, I'll prevent your chances of getting these, this disorder. And so I love being at the stage where I can, you know, affect preventative measures that will prevent you from getting to something that I could never treat. I could never truly help in the way that you would want me to, and that I wanted to. So that's, that's where the tools have come in.
0: What does let's let's go. Cause I know we can't talk about specifics. I'm not sitting in your, your office right now. Um, but in general terms, what does the average person, you know, the healthy 40 something 50 something year old person who probably has more aches and pains than they did when they were 20, but, but what, what does the average person need to understand maybe even urgently about sleep and proactive, um, You know, pushing off whatever it is that's that's in our DNA.
1: Yeah. So I I, and I'm glad you brought up sleep specifically because if you hadn't, I would have said that's probably where we need to do the most education of the general population because I think you know the 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 recommendations around diet and exercise they've been out there for years. We could tweak them to a great degree, absolutely. But in from sleep, I think there's a great degree of. Um, misunderstanding. I mean, it wasn't that long ago when people said, well, you'll sleep when you die, party hard, work hard. And sleep was just a very dispensable part of life where, you know, you get to do so much more if you didn't sleep. And the data out there around the importance of sleep that actually probably supersedes even diet and exercise is really building. So, for example, most people are getting. I mean, an average six and a bit hours. And the data would show that really we all need seven and a half to eight and a half to nine. We're talking about adults here. And that when we deprive ourselves, even to a, well, you could consider a small degree of going down to seven hours, we see impact on cognitive function the next day. We, look, we see impact on a person's ability to learn and retain learned material. We see changes to uh, emotional uh, behavior, your ability to maintain that. You know, when you, when there are people out there who, who are driving on five or four hours of sleep, and they've got data that shows if you go down to five hours, your chance of having a car accident goes up by fivefold. If it's four hours, it's 11fold. You know, um, when we get daylight savings time and, and we lose an hour, the rates of heart attacks go up. The day we we get an extra hour of sleep, rates of heart attacks go down. One night of disturbed sleep shows our uh, sugar levels go up. If you do that for a week, you're basically in a pre-diabetic state. If we did blood tests at that point, we we see an increase in stress hormones. We see uh, markers of inflammation go up. Certain cells that are there to not only fight infection, but to survey the body, to look for cancer cells to prevent you from getting cancer, because it's something that happens all the time, go down. So the, the impact on our well-being is, is tremendous. We can also, for everyone who cares about weight loss, uh, if you've lost a small amount of sleep, your hunger hormones... Guerlain go up, satiety hormones go down. They've shown you'll eat at least 300 calories more that day. You'll choose things that are not healthy, the high sugar, high fat, because the brain is is, is deprived of energy. So it's trying to get you to eat something that's a quick source of energy. So you're not picking mm-hmm. the broccoli and the carrots. Um, and what we've learned, so so in the deep phase of sleep, in the last few years, we've realized or we've, we've recognized that the brain cleans itself out. It flushes out toxins that have built up over, over the day. And if you haven't slept well, if you've been deprived of some hours of sleep, not entirely, they've actually done um, spinal taps and they've shown that the, the, the toxins, these beta amyloids, accumulate. And guess what we see in the brains of Alzheimer patients? beta amyloid deposits. Now they may not be the entire cause of why you develop Alzheimer's, but this junk is building up and then we see it in in dementia patients. So when you're not getting good sleep, you're getting deprived of sleep long-term, you've got a higher rate of having cancer. If you're already a cancer patient who isn't sleeping well, you're more likely to die of it than to survive. We see higher rates of heart attacks, strokes, um, as I said, uh, diabetes. And certainly when you don't sleep well your, your, uh, mood and emotional, uh, being is impacted. So all, all psychiatric conditions are associated with poor sleep. Now what's, what comes first chicken or the egg, but you can take an entirely healthy, well person, deprive them of sleep, and they will become emotionally erratic. Okay. So, so if,
0: if you don't, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And if Why you I just, just put out my hand, as we uh, all do, hello. Exactly,
1: yeah. you can see it in kids, right? Like if they miss their nap, they're a bear, they're a nightmare. Turns out we are the same, we just maybe hide it a little bit differently, and people assume it's everything else. But we need the sleep to be calm, collected, to be able to handle the stressors of life. Um, you know, they've shown that people who haven't slept as much or, or uh, been deprived a little bit behave less ethically are less contributory in work environments. Like from a work environment perspective, it impacts production. I mean, people are less creative. They're less able to think outside the box or to problem solve uh, entirely. You know, for students, it's, it's huge. It's huge because, you know, the studying and, and pulling the all-nighter, you want to tell them you need to sleep for the memories of what you just learned to go into long-term memory. And you need sleep to set you up to be able to learn the next day. But it's not just students; all of us. We're all learning all the time, and we need to be as calm as collected and as cognitively sharp as we can be. I had a patient not that long ago it was an elderly couple, uh, husband and wife, and he was already diagnosed with dementia. And she, he would go to respite care, um, you know, three times a week. And they noticed that you know he he was falling asleep and snoring. They said, "Oh, maybe you should have him tested for sleep apnea." And we did test him. He was found to have quite severe apnea, and we got him on treatment. And after he'd been on that for a few weeks, he went back to respite care and they would every once in a while do some cognitive testing to see where he was at. And I, I don't know exactly which uh, test they did, so I can't speak to, to it exactly, but the wife said they were shocked. He went up like 10 points. Wow. And so, and, and the reality is, I, and I've had um, perimenopausal women who come and say, you know, I, I don't sleep well. I figure it's menopause. It's hot flashes. Turns out they had a lot of apnea. We treated that and they came back and said... I'm totally sure. I just thought it was age and menopause, but here I am. I can think, I can function, I have energy.
0: Oh, here we go. (laughs) Soapbox moment. Okay, do it. Uh, Yeah, I I have a really hard time buying into everything that is being, that is ascribed to what must happen to a woman once she hits a certain age.
1: Right.
0: Always have been. And certainly some of that is informed by like fear of aging, like, you know, to be fully transparent, but also observing the, the the aging experience of different women in around me in my life has shown that, you know, maybe, maybe it's genetics, maybe it's not. Right. And, uh, and even just yesterday, this is kind of ridiculous that it's coming in as context, but I had to send off. So I'm 52. I'm transparent about my age because...
1: Because you look yeah, wonderful well, for 52 and I would have put you well, in your younger.
0: <laughs> That's I've always... Yeah. Well, it's in professionally, it can be really interesting. Even at 52, people think, you know, maybe you have about a decade's less experience than you actually have. And I sit there and I'm outraged because I'm like, really? We're still proving experience at this point. That's
1: why I let my, my gray hairs grow in. <laughs> because uh, You know, otherwise like you're too,
0: yeah, you're too young to do too this. You're too I'm young like, oh, to know okay. anything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, but to go back around to that, you know, I had to send off a bunch of pictures from 10 years ago to a group of people. They don't know They've got they've got tape of me. It's for a television show, and she made a comment to me yesterday about the entire crew wants your DNA. And (laughs) well, I was I said to her, I'll be very very great. I will express my gratitude to my 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 mom uh, and my aunts and uncles because my dad and my grandparents are not here. And uh, but then afterwards, I was like, well, you know what? It's been a little bit more than genetics. It's been a commitment to to self-care. And so hearing this stuff about sleep it is like, what if, what if it is about, you know, quote unquote, sleep hygiene? What if it's not just about being a certain age and you're, yes, obviously menstruation and things are changing, but it just feels so much like you're doomed to this horrible aging process. Like help me make sense of that. Right.
1: And I think, you know, we've, we've become acclimatized to the diseases of age. You're all going to become hypertensive, diabetic, have high cholesterol. Like everybody would come in with their stamp of five drugs that they need to be taken by a certain age. And yet I think we all know like the sprightly 82 year old yoga teacher who looks amazing, never took a drug in her life, has more energy than you or I put together. And you think, is it genetics? Or has she just been doing all the stuff that I'm just catching up on now and trying to tell my patients about so that they realize those, those conditions are not inevitable, right? I mean, there are certain things that are making it really difficult like our environment and our food sources and everything. But if we can make the best decisions and know what we can do to make things better and implement them, then we have a real fighting chance of being a heck of a lot better than what We envision because that's what we see all around us. So you don't have to be incapacitated, out of breath, in a chair, with no energy, not exercising by the time you're 68 or 72, okay? And that's the reality. So so it's getting the message out. Mm -hmm. And I think we see those examples everywhere. We just don't realize that it wasn't just luck that got those Mm -hmm. people there.
0: Um. So let's talk about that. I think I shared with you that I've created a self-care program and that's very much, you know, I, that my biggest credentials are a psych degree and undergrad and life experience and, and business experience and, and experience as a coach and, you know, came really came into sharp, sharp, sharp focus a couple of years ago that self-care has really been my survival mechanism, whether it was dealing with. Um, you know, fortunately, I haven't had any significant disease at, at this point. Um, but it was dealing with um, recovering from trauma, and you know, and I'm sure that could be framed up as a as a disease very, very easily.
1: Oh, absolutely! And you, I, I would throw in there the the A study, the Adverse Childhood Event study. Is this something you've ever heard of?
0: No, please share.
1: Oh, so, so it's it's basically a study that was done, I think, in the late late 1990s. And they, they basically asked people, were you exposed to, uh, and they they listed a number of potential traumas, whether it was sexual abuse or living in an alcoholic household, in, in a otherwise abusive household, um, devoid of parental love and so forth. And they correlated that with the development of various chronic diseases and depression as adults. And there was a definite correlation if you had, I believe it's three or four of those uh, adverse events in childhood, your rate of having chronic illness really shot up. So there is Mm -hmm. definitely just to back up what you just said, a correlation between traumas. They don't have to be big traumas. They can be relatively smaller traumas, but that do affect your long-term health and, and, and and diseases.
0: So yeah, let me just interject, but go ahead. Continue. So, yeah. So the value of, um, of having sort of regimens, routines, maybe even, you know, it's not a medical term, but like rituals around health and and self-care, depending on how people, whatever works for you, basically, um, as far as how you think about these things. Do you see that even in your work, are you talking to people about mindfulness? Are you talking to people about, you know, the sleep hygiene or
1: absolutely absolutely because it's one of those vicious circles unfortunately where as I said you know you need to get enough good quality sleep to be emotionally regulated to handle the stresses of life and to you know self-correct in that way unfortunately enough stress and poor lifestyle poor diet poor scheduling poor sleep hygiene with electronic use right up until bedtime and in bed and so forth Ruin your sleep, and now you've got um, sort of you're you're less able to handle uh, those stresses. So now your response to it is even worse. And again, if you are deprived of sleep, your adrenaline and cortisol levels go up. So you're just you're making this hot mess. But it's a combination of not only letting people know just how imperative it is to get sleep, because so many people I know think as long as they got their five and a half or six good math, and I don't really see why there's any problems or why am I having these other issues? So not realizing how far off the mark they really are from where they need to be to be physiologically well. But it's then also, I mean, people's lifestyles are full of very stressful things. Some well, you know, within their control and some not. So of course, I speak to them about the impact of using electronics in their screens before bed and how that contributes to poor sleep and therefore all those other health problems. But there's there needs to be ways to deal with the stresses that life throw at you so that you can be a little bit more resilient and. Be able to fall asleep at night, so we definitely have the conversations around meditative breathing throughout the day and before bed, um, things things like that, because it's 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 a it's a jigsaw puzzle, right? You need everything to work together, and you need to address all of them together to get somewhere.
0: And it's rough when you think about, you know, the busyness of everyone. And I'm sure it's the same for you um, unless you are a doctor who's like a superhuman and don't have any of these things in your life.
1: (laughs) Nope. I'm right there with everybody else. Let me tell you. I might just be the idiot with the uh, blue light filter glasses at night, you know, from 8 p.m. making her children wear them. But yes, otherwise I'm exactly in the same place. Do you do that? I do. I found it personally helpful because, you know, as as much as I... Talk to all my patients and encourage them to stop using their electronics in the couple of hours before bed because of that blue light exposure that reduces deep sleep and REM sleep and may prevent you from falling asleep in the first place. Even I have to sometimes be on my computer to get things done. Um so so sometimes you knowing what you know, you reprioritize. Mm-hmm. And so for my children, if they're studying, I say put away the computer and get a better night's sleep. It will be more efficacious for what you're trying to achieve and you're still growing and you need those growth hormones released. So you do that and we won't worry about the the assignment results if you haven't gotten there yet. But let's talk about why you didn't start earlier. But you know, so so to some degree knowing what you know, sometimes you try to mitigate the damage or to avoid it as much as possible. So yeah, so so you can't always be perfect and it's not
0: always your option. And it's so funny because I would have been among the uh, among the people who would have been like, oh that's, you know, like the next tinfoil hat. Right. Right? And here I am talking to you and writing down blue light filtered glasses or
1: well and and I will tell you because I said, you know, you gotta walk the walk. If you're going to talk the talk, let's see if this works for me. And I noticed a difference. So, you know, some I'll tell patients, look, these are some recommendations that are out there. I'm going to tell you what worked for me also. Um, especially if they overlap, because some of it is about the data on 30,000 patients tested. And some of it mm-hmm. is some stuff works for, for some people and not for others. And yeah, if I've had a super stressful day and I'm worried about a thousand things. I'm still going to have a lousy night's sleep whether I wore those you know, glasses or not, but on the days where I didn't, that could be just the difference between me getting enough of my deep and REM sleep and not, Right, um, where I couldn't get rid of the screen use. So little things can add up for sure.
0: It's also making me reflect on, I know, on my screens flip over to the night mode, but it's probably right. not enough.
1: It's not enough. And that's exactly right. So they've actually done those studies. So for me, I, I I do that. Plus, this is an extra level. And, um, you know, when you're looking at a screen and it's directly going into your eyes, it has the most uh, impact. But we all have LED lights right? In our pot lights, in whatever other lights, God bless them, the little reading book lights, you know, to try to reduce the ambient lighting, they, they made those. So that blue lighting is getting at you everywhere. So I just put it on so that I get less of that in the evening, because that has a bit of an impact too. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, that's good to know. May I, may I ask you as a, you know, one human being to another, what are some of your self-care things that you do?
1: So I try to do about five minutes of meditation, a guided meditation, um, often in bed because that's (laughs) the only downtime that that I can get as a mom. But whenever possible, I do try to finish my work between nine and 9.30, knowing that if I don't, I'm going to have a lousier night and it's going to set me up poorly for the next day. So I'd rather be set up well. Um, I do some of the meditative breathing, especially before eating, because that helps with digestion, but also brings those cortisol levels down. I mean, probably I I do exercise regularly. I find that very helpful and I do a combination of cardio and and, and weight training. Um, but when I can only choose one or the other, I make sure that my sleep is as good as possible. And I try, um, and you know, for me, diet has been very, very, uh, important. And I, and I find that there's a huge difference when I eat very clean. So I do, I I, I don't eat gluten, but I notice a tremendous difference when I completely cut out the sugar and the dairy. So I try to keep to that as possible, or, you know, really load up on broccoli if I've had that chocolate. Um, but I find that those things really work synergistically. I, um, you know up until only a few years ago for me it was all about have i spent every moment working you know that was the mm-hmm. the legitimizing aspect right that's who i am that's what i worked decades to become so am i putting that to full effect and one of the things that i think evolves as you get older maybe a little bit more tired but you realize it's okay to value other aspects of life and and other experiences so to to really enjoy and bask in the enjoyment of non-work things. It's not all, you know, I, I not being a workaholic, you know, and, and just taking advantage of everything else that not only life can offer, but to truly enjoy it and be okay enjoying it. So I used to be the person who brought work on vacations, you know, well, maybe we shouldn't take as long a vacation because I need to get this work done. And I've slowly peeled that away over the years to the point where I think, Why was I even thinking I needed to? It's hard because the demands are always there. People will always ask for more. One of the things that I've finally uh, admitted to myself is that you you can't do it all. You can't be all things to all people. And so I can't be the physician that works, you know, 8.30 to 6 every day, sees all the patient, comes home, do the child care, be everything to the family, organize all the extracurriculars, make sure that my family eats healthy and prioritize all those Mm -hmm. things. It, it, that was stressing me out to say the least, and I realized it's not possible. So when I said that can't all be done, I need to pare back on some things. And this is where the deciding about what were the priorities, what do I absolutely need to do and, and want to do, and work around that. And and I'm extremely lucky that I have autonomy over my work time, and also the luxury to say, look, if I have to have all these family responsibilities there needs to be some time taken away even from work. And that was something that I only came to in the last few years to say, what, I'm going to not work all the time so that I can do things for my family? But absolutely. And when I not only made those decisions, but followed through on them, I realized, wow, my stress level has gone down. Wow, my happiness has gone up. Wow, my sleep has gotten better. Mm. I don't know which came first, but it all comes together. And so that was huge. you know. And I'm in my... 40 something. And so it's one of those things where thank God I got to it now. If only I could have not only realized it, but believed it when I was younger, like that would be something that I would pass on to younger women say, you can't do it all. So prioritize those few main things and make sure there's enough time for it. And then don't add all the other stuff on.
0: You just can't. Yeah. And for those of us who are, I, I mean, I think we all get some of these lessons at the time they're meant to come to us.
1: I agree. There were times when you're open to
0: it and times when you're not. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I'm even thinking, you're made, you were reminding me of me in my corporate life, where it was my entire identity. And mm-hmm. you know. And then as I, I, I do think it's an experience thing, that, and maybe not always an age thing, even though they come hand in hand, where it's like, wait a minute, there's, there's more here. And even when I, even regionally, um, I lived in the West for nine years, There is a different set of priorities in British Columbia than there are in Toronto, period, end of story.
1: The milieu really makes a difference. And I think maybe what does come with age and experience is to say, I may be bucking trends. I may not be doing the things that is traditional and expected of me and recognized and what my mentors would have thought was a good idea. But I'm actually at the stage of my life where I'm going to listen to the voices in my heart and in my head and say, this is the direction I need to go. And this is okay. And it's right. And, you know, I mean, they've come out and said people who change careers midway are actually a lot happier. And when I heard that stat, I thought that's because you finally are starting to look at what makes sense for you. Who are you? what do you want to do what makes you happy what brings you some meaning and satisfaction and then you make the change based on that not when you were younger and you were listening to all the other voices of telling you what you should and should be and how to do it you're finally coming into that stage so listen to that you know and I think for me actually paying attention to those um, recommendations of listen to what your body and your mind actually want to what direction they want to go in and Follow it. Huge. it was huge. huge.
0: Well, and I think as adults, um, we ascribe those qualities and characteristics of doing what everybody else is doing to the teenagers. And it's realized, like, you know what, in my 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s and beyond, am I really just being a great big teenager right now or do I need to have some agency here and, and do You're what's like you- best for me?
1: Yeah. You've worked yourself onto a path that was set how long ago and who were you and why did you choose it then? You're a different person or you're likely to be a different person and you know yourself better. So then now you create your own path, right? it's, it feels so much better. And, you know, I think a lot of self-care comes with setting boundaries and saying no, and then not feeling guilty about it. And that's, I think we still struggle with that every day. Cause, you know, even in in family life, you have children who will ask and ask and ask. But from a work perspective, there will always be questions for more and more. And just saying no,
0: and I, it's okay that I said that, and not feeling guilty for the next three days, right? Yeah, you took the words right out of my head, and <laughs> and that's you know, I have to say, I find that really validating because in the in the winter of self care and summer of self care programs that I've started to run, boundaries is one of the first topics. Yeah. Yeah. And even, you know, it's interesting because by the time that people, um, I run it Fridays at 10 AM and, and people ask me why. And I'm like, well, a it works for me. Right. <laughs> and you know, yeah. why am I not doing it on a Tuesday night at 8 PM after ever all, all the kids are fed? It's like, that does not work for me. That's a boundary yes. it means to get around that boundary. But, but boundaries is one of the first topics. And to come up because over the course of the weeks, people start to think about them differently and notice where they're um, porous. Yeah. And the energy management around that is
1: absolutely
0: unbelievable, right?
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I think we've all been at that stage where we're answering our emails, responding to things right up until bedtime. And I tell my sleep patients, you know what? that's a stress. Even if you think, you know, that's a bit of a no brainer. I just need to send that. It already tells your brain it's not safe and and quiet and warm and fuzzy to go to sleep. You know, you need to feel like there are no, there are no stresses or threats and physiologically your brain sees that as a bit of a threat. It's an arousal. So just like we used to, you know, Calm our babies down, hold them, rock them, let them know it's safe, warm, and, and comfortable to go to sleep. Our brain kind of needs that too. And if you're on call, on demand, responsive, let me clean the kitchen before I go to bed, you're asking too much of your system and you're telling it, it's not okay. We There's more to do. There's more to accomplish. Your hormone responses to that are the same as if it's just not safe. And so you're not going to get to sleep and you're not going to get the hours that you need. And also, you know, just letting people know you need more rest time than you are giving yourself. You know, when people say closer to nine hours, are you insane? I'm like, no, that's what physiologically happens when everything is taken away, like pollution demands, phones, everything. This is what people physiologically need and do well at. So recognize that and be okay with working towards getting
0: that. You know, there's yeah. Yeah. And maybe prioritizing a little bit differently.
1: Absolutely. And Absolutely.
0: I guess that's a, that's another form of boundaries and, you know, aren't we all who are in these positions of either serving people um, and, and leading them right? or um, a lot of, and I guess, you know, in many ways it's all a reflection of, of me, but a lot of people who listen to this are highly creative So creating that time to write or even, heck, edit and publish that podcast. Lots of times that happens late at night. Right, right. And so deciding ultimately what's more important here.
1: And and keeping in mind that if you want to be creative, thinking outside the box, coming up with those big thoughts, you can't when you're sleep deprived. You just won't. Not in the Mm -hmm. same way. Right. So you might be the kind of person who, who gets that at night, but if, so as long as you're getting those hours all in a row after that, and you can sleep in and, and you can get those, you know, seven and a half to eight and a half hours. Okay, great. Fair enough. But for most people, it doesn't quite work that way. And the ones will say, well, I get four hours here and then maybe I'll have a two hour nap there. I have to tell them it's not the same as getting continuous sleep. It's just not. Mm. So where you think you're getting hacks, you're not. So we just want people to know that not everything is as good as a straight number of hours of sleep.
0: Oh, I love that. And not everything is a hack either.
1: You're right. And, you know, the big thing is, you know, human beings have been around for how long? Mother Nature is a very efficient and effective, you know, organizer and planner. If we were meant to spend a third of our time sleeping, not responding, not procreating, not doing any of those things. There must be a damn good reason for it, right? So why mess with that? And we are messing with it with everything that we do. So uh, let's recognize it for what it is. And, And you kind of want to tell people like, wouldn't you love to see how you feel and what you're capable of and what you can accomplish when you have slept well? it's, it's amazing. It's actually so fabulous. You know, when I have my patients come in, it's like, yeah, I sleep better. I don't need that nap. I'm not dozing off. I'm like, I can concentrate. I can do this. And Mm. and it's lovely, right?
0: Quality as opposed to quantity.
1: Well, right. well, when it comes to sleep, I tell you- No, tell I mean in know. terms of
0: productivity.
1: Yes, exactly. So you're, you're more efficient and effective. So you can get something done in an hour, whereas your sleep deprived brain might have needed three or four hours. So you're better off getting the sleep and then getting it done efficiently. And at the end of the day, you accomplish that and probably more.
0: So what I'm hearing then is my sleep deprived brain that's constantly dragging me down to the kitchen to make a cup of tea and grab a cookie mm-hmm. is less effective, less efficient, and uh, and less productive than the sleep, the, the mind, the brain that's been allowed to properly rest and have maybe four hours highly productive instead of five or six or seven
1: Exactly, highly productive. Won't crave the cookie. That's probably causing a leaky gut. That's worsening inflammation. That's making you more tired and sleep poorly. Um, but exactly. And then sometimes you might have a few more aha moments of, you know, inspiration, making connections you wouldn't have seen otherwise. Like, wouldn't that be fabulous?
0: It would be fabulous. It would be
1: fabulous. And yet, sounds like a good experiment. Sounds like a worthwhile investment, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, 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 you know, being healthy, well into your old age, worthwhile investments.
0: Absolutely. Well, listen, Adit, uh, we're coming to the end of our scheduled time and I'm just, I want to express such gratitude for you to be, you know, so willing and then accommodating to set up the time and then, um, you know, coming on here and not just having a really big conversation, but also allowing us to be a little playful with it too, which, which is fantastic.
1: My pleasure, and you know, love the idea of getting the message out that there's so much in people's hands. Uh, so thank you for having me.
0: This is the point in the podcast where I usually come back on to wrap up the episode by asking you to share if it had value for you, and of course, yes, please still do that. But today, I'm here with something different to share a little bit about my upcoming winter of self care program. If you listened to what Adit was saying and thought you need to make some adjustments of changes of your own, the program might be for you. It's something that I've been putting into practice for the past few years and then formalized into the first summer of self-care earlier this year. Then I thought, why wait till summer when we can do it all again in the winter? The Winter of Self-Care is a 10-week live online coaching program led by yours truly, leadership coach Laura Tucker. It's a program with a highly effective framework for change, big topics in personal growth, and lively interaction with me and other program participants ironically it's also a program that has come out of some of the limitations of my own coaching time with clients there isn't time to cover all of the principles while going deep into their life business and leadership just like the doctors and practitioners there just isn't enough time so i've created time it's a ton of fun. It officially begins mid-January and if you're listening to the episode when it's fresh, you might have time to catch the early bird rate and a couple of extra early bird sessions early December. Visit lauratucker.com slash winter for more information. It's going to be a different kind of winter and I'd love to have you there.